You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As usual, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, podcasting from New York City. And I'm joined by my usual co-host, Prashant Parmeswaran. Good to have you back, Prashant. How are you? Good. Good to be with you. Yeah, it is uh, good to have you on. And um, we'll be discussing the historic event, um, and I can say that without any doubt, of... um, (laughs) Donald Trump's victory in the U.S. presidential election. This is a podcast that, I'll be fully honest, I did not expect that we would have to do. Um, like most people out there, I believe that it appeared to be more likely that Hillary Clinton, who represented continuity and sustenance of essentially much of the Obama administration's legacy, was set to win, but that did not come to pass. Uh, Hillary Clinton has conceded, and Donald Trump is now officially president-elect Donald Trump. Um, and here, you know, I should go and just disclose to our listeners that I'm on the record as thinking that Donald Trump's foreign policy positions across the board are generally a very bad idea. Um, I've signed an open letter to that effect. And, you know, I'm keeping an open mind at this point that um, that I'm wrong and I'm willing to be pleasantly surprised, but I'm not, you know, crossing my fingers. Um, but, you know, Prashant, you wrote about this today. Um, and actually, there's a very good article that Prashant managed to get together on the first day of Donald Trump being president-elect that I'll link to in the description to this podcast, looking at what Trump's Asia policy might be. And since we cover Asia geopolitics on this podcast, I did want to you know, run through some of these scenarios. And I actually wrote about some of the scenarios as well, mostly looking at what um, Asian security risks might be in the event that a Trump administration pulls back and retrenches and pursues a policy of isolationism, essentially fully abandoning the uh, Pacific pivot and pulling America back in a sense. Um, so, you know, we need a framework really to talk about this, Prashant, because, you know, as you note in your piece, there's really um, little data to talk about here. I mean, uh, Trump's released a few yeah. positions, but he's contradicted his own positions publicly. His advisors have said one thing, he's said one thing. Um, and really until he appoints a cabinet and starts thinking about you know, what he's going to pursue in terms of his foreign policy. There's little to talk about. So I just wanted to, you know, frame this in terms of the scenarios. Um, so I think, you know, one of the maybe more optimistic scenarios that we can think of for a Trump presidency is that Trump turns out to be a Schwarzenegger-esque Republican, you know, um, maybe willing to work transactionally. And, uh, you know, and there's reason to believe that he might turn out this way. He comes from a background in real estate, constantly talks about his acumen and deal making and his ability to get along with a variety of figures, uh, everybody from Vladimir Putin to Kim Jong-un which leads to some interesting possibilities, certainly in the Asian context. The second framework that I can at least think of is more, you know, we see Trump maybe entering the framework of something like Nixon mixed with Silvio Berlusconi. Um, And that's a horrifying image in some ways. But, um, you know, Nixon definitely did have his own uh, ideas about foreign policy, which we've actually uh, discussed on a recent podcast about Rodrigo Duterte. But in this sense, we might see a Trump that's more unpredictable, uh, prone to vagaries, prone to rash decision making. And on the other hand, you know, I think another possibility is that it turns out that Trump actually does have a very clear ideology and a very clear doctrine that he's looking to bring to foreign policy and to America's role in the world. And here, you know, we can refer to some of the mottos that we heard during the campaign season, including Trump's use of the America First motto, which uh, has an ugly history that I won't get onto on the podcast. But it is certainly a framework that could end up coming into practice. Um, So anyways, I've been talking for a while. I want to turn it over to you, Prashant. Um, You know, let's start with the first framework. Uh, You know, if Trump turns out to be a transactional type, where do you really see that taking us with uh, Asia policy? Yeah, I think, I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, there's there's still a lot of uh, unknowns here. Um, His, I spoke to 
one of his advisors uh, a few hours ago earlier this morning, and um, I think even they are, are struggling with the flood of inquiries that they've been getting on Asia policy and what a Trump presidency is going to be like. And I think the, the sense I got from them is that a lot of these things were still evolving. Uh, I think even some of them weren't expecting to win the election. So um, the keys you know, to be, to be watching when you're talking about this transactional or deal-making framework um, a couple of things. First, you know, who are going to be the the main uh, cabinet individuals as well as his advisors? I mean, the the essential question we're dealing with here is how involved Donald Trump will be on foreign policy, whether he is going to be sort of the deal maker in chief or whether he's going to outsource this to um, some of his other uh, cabinet officials and even some of his advisors. And here, you know, there's a huge unknown in the sense that um, a large number of Republicans essentially oppose Donald Trump, and some of them even uh, support Hillary Clinton. So we don't know whether those folks are going to come back or not. The second thing I think uh, uh, to watch will be, I mean, what what are the key deals that he's going to make? I mean, one of the, the theories out there is that Donald Trump's going to try to reach some kind of agreement with uh, Russia or, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, with China. Um, I think of the two... Uh, the, the sort of Russia reset scenario is, would, would be the, the, the more likely. But even there, I think I'd be a little bit skeptical um, just because if you, if you look at and you talk to some of his advisors, I mean, they're, they're quite cautious about how they want to approach uh, the foreign policy approach. The, they're trying to sort of think about broad contours. There's um, talk about uh, Donald Trump sort of sticking to uh, – a little bit of a harder, more hawkish line uh, on China and focusing on this very sort of uh, narrow, realist uh, version of uh, foreign policy. Um, so I, I really don't know where we would go in terms of the deals because, as you said, I mean, uh, we have a number of countries that would be interested in this. And one of the interesting things to think about is, you know, how would Trump deal with somebody like uh, Rodrigo Duterte, who <laughs> Uh, on on the inverse has, has suggested that you know the 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 proposition of the U.S. Philippine alliance is unfair from the Philippine perspective, and Donald right. Trump is suggesting that these alliances are unfair from a U.S. perspective. Um, so so that's I think one that will be interesting to watch. But you know any number of transactions and deals here that that could be made or not made. Right, a Trump Duterte summit is certainly something for the imagination. I wonder if Trump will send Duterte a copy of the Art of the Deal to peruse before any <laughs> negotiations on rebalancing the alliance. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, the door has essentially been blown open on the range of possibilities here. And you know, the bigger picture here is that, um, and I alluded to this, and I really don't think it's hyperbolic to say that we might be entering, you know, the the post post World War. To order, uh, the, you know, the liberal international order that all American presidents since Harry Truman have kind of understood as sort of the baseline fundamental of American foreign policy that should be upheld, even if the specifics can be tweaked here and there. You know, things like NATO, things like keeping up the alliance system um, in Asia, things like extended deterrence, um, nuclear nonproliferation. A lot of those assumptions, I think, are starting to crumble. And here's where I think the other scenarios of Trump or a theory of Trump uh, or a theory of Trumpian foreign policy start to get interesting, which is where it turns out that he is either um, an unpredictable Nixonian type or a um, an ideologue of sorts in the end. 
Um, and, you know, here I think we get into even more unpredictable territory, Prashant. I mean, obviously here I've imagined, you know, a range of doomsday scenarios in the Asia Pacific, which honestly I think are worth thinking about seriously. And, uh, you know, this includes serious um, consideration of nuclear breakout by countries like South Korea and possibly even Japan. Um, but even a range of other scenarios, including a potential conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Um, but we can we can get to those in more specific later on the show. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, what's your take of, um, you know, on what we might expect if that scenario comes to pass? Yeah, I think, I mean, if, if you see Donald Trump uh, trying to be very sort of uh, heavily involved in foreign policy and he actually follows through on this, this as you correctly pointed out, post-World uh, post War II uh, international order, uh, that would be very disastrous for, for U.S. foreign policy. And uh, I think it, it would be sort of a nightmare scenario. I think the sense that uh, I got, at least, from, from talking to his advisors and what, what they've been saying um, is that... Uh, his rhetoric uh, is sort of a starting position, and this is where we get into some of the fusion scenarios, right? You could have a case where you know Donald Trump has been uh, talking about these things rhetorically, and in terms of foreign policy, he's sort of done it because it sort of fuses with his domestic vision, right? Which is he doesn't want to expend any resources uh, overseas, and that sells very well domestically. No foreign wars, but then also capitalizing on the fact that you know the, the, the United States has been weakened by the Obama administration, and we need to be strong. We need to develop our military. So those two prongs go very well domestically. But the extent to which he's going to actually implement those um, remains to be seen, primarily because, I mean, even if the administration tries to get this through, you're going to have to deal with a bureaucracy that might be reluctant to do this and ha really has no experience in sort of this uh, nightmare scenario that, that's coming to pass, right? Um, but you're right. I mean, if we see Donald Trump move uh, towards the scenario, um, that could have uh, serious consequences for for the Asia Pacific. Um, you know, China would. Uh, China has already been uh, taking advantage of some of the slack uh, from the Obama administration, and I think if there's questions about U.S. credibility and U.S. presence, the Chinese would be happy to capitalize. Um, and I think you know the the saving grace might be uh, in terms of you know this scenario not coming to pass is that the Trump uh, administration would recognize that um, if this were to happen, this nightmare scenario, that could have blowback consequences for Trump's position and legitimacy domestically as well, because you're going to have uh, people in Congress kind of, you know, shouting about things, and it undercuts his image as, you know, sort of the strong figure, right? If if the United States is being undermined and bullied by China and other countries, so that's the saving grace. I, I certainly don't hope. Uh, I certainly hope that we don't have to deal with that sort of nightmare scenario, because if we do, um, as you mentioned correctly in your piece, all bets are off. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of feel like we've been uh, wasting our time here with all these years analyzing the pivot and uh, worrying about freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. I mean, all of these things might end up completely being thrown out the window. Um, all right. You know, let's uh, let's get a little bit more specific and just talk about, you know, some of the country specific, region specific scenarios that come up. Um, let's start with China, since you brought it up. I think, you know, that's obviously one of the Big interesting questions. I mean, a great power competition between between the United States and China is now poised to play out between President Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, at least over Trump's first term. And it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. So, you know, as you as you correctly pointed out, I mean, Trump appears to be very, very resistant to the idea of expending U.S. treasure abroad for a variety of, um, you know, 
reasons. So, you know, if you look at things like the Obama administration's last minute pushes, like things like the maritime security initiative, spending money on Southeast Asian countries, helping them bolster their military and Coast Guard capabilities, I think a lot of that is going to be out of the window. Um, and obviously here you have room for China to fill the vacuums that might arise, um, even though there is considerable regional skepticism of Beijing's role. You know, I think this might represent an immense opportunity, for example, for initiatives like One Belt, One Road, which continue to be ill-defined and in a sense are advantageous strategically because they are so ill-defined. You know, you could imagine um, OBOR projects being um, expanded, being offered on more favorable terms um, amid a complete lacuna in U.S. interest um, broadly across the region, but especially in Southeast Asia. Um, other scenarios with China, I mean, look, I really worry about the Taiwan Strait scenario since, you know, obviously we have a Democratic Progressive Party government in Taiwan now under Tsai Ing-wen, and we've seen ties across the strait deteriorate very sharply. And obviously in the past, we've seen conflicts across the Taiwan Strait where the United States has had to intervene in the 1990s, especially. And, you know, if we see a repeat of something like the Taiwan Strait crises play out under a Trump presidency with uh, China. I mean, look, the People's Liberation Army still plans for a Taiwan Strait contingency as its top warfighting plan. Um, and if this comes to pass, I mean, you know, it's it's not impossible to imagine a scenario, of course, of reunification with China, simply deciding to seize the moment, knowing for a fact that Trump as commander in chief will be entirely disinterested in expending any U.S. treasure, you know, in the, in the Taiwan Strait. And, you know, I think even even in the face of congressional opposition there, because you're right, I mean, Congress, even though the Congress is controlled by the Republicans, um, you know, even if there is intra-party opposition to the idea of letting U.S. allies and uh, longtime partners like Taiwan out to dry, I think, you know, overall, it it bodes fairly poorly for that. Um, any comments on the China angle here? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the... Uh, sort of key variable here is um, the sort of contradiction we've seen with Donald Trump going back to you know his overall vision is you know he on the one hand he's been uh, reluctant to expend American treasure in terms of his rhetoric um, but then if, if, if you look at his visions what he's proposed and um, what his advisors have been saying at the same time you know while he's said that he's will unwilling to use military force as the first resort He's also one of the key platforms uh, of his Asia policy and overall vision is building up uh, the U.S. military um, and dealing with the problem of sequestration. Um, and one of the punching bags that, have been, that has been used is China in terms of um, you know the, the China China's increasing naval capabilities, presence in the South China Sea. So you do have a tension here, and and, and uh, I'm not sure where the Trump administration will end up. My sense is that um, you know a lot of this is going to be a two-way dynamic, right? So if you see the Chinese taking ex extreme actions, whether in the South China Sea or Taiwan Strait, that's going to enable the Trump administration to play on existing threat perceptions, and then you could see a more active presence. But you know, I, I'm more inclined to think that uh, it, unless we see one of these extreme scenarios, um, whether it's on Taiwan Strait or South China Sea, um, the Trump administration will uh, not very readily be willing to use U.S. military power to be actually deployed in a conflict scenario. Um, it'll be content on just building up U.S. military capabilities and building up U.S. economic strength because if it can claim that it's building up American strength without actually using it, um, that, that's probably the best uh, domestic benefit in terms of Trump's legitimacy. Um, but the problem is if Beijing tests that proposition, uh, Donald Trump is then going to have to, and the, and the Trump administration in general, is going to have to 
actually respond and its credibility is going to be tested. Right. Uh, I'm really glad you brought up the testing point since I didn't want to forget that on this podcast. I mean, one of the areas where I just see room for instability globally with the Trump presidency with an ill-defined foreign policy is the need for U.S. adversaries to test you know, response thresholds for Mm -hmm. any sort of U.S. action. And that's true of China. That's true of Russia. That's uh, probably even true of North Korea, probably even true of Pakistan. I mean, it's it just sets up a really dangerous precedent. I mean, in the past, with the continuity that we've had, even across, you know, partisan changes in government in the United States, most countries have known, you know, where the red lines stand with the Trump administration. I think all bets are off. And that really creates um, some huge room for error. Um, And again, you know, like you said, personality matters here and the credibility angle, why I haven't, you know, I haven't really given the credibility angle much credence in really explaining U.S. foreign policy in the past, but it's easy to imagine a Trump administration taking certain slights very personally. Um, and we've seen how he reacts to things on Twitter. Um, yeah. and it's not un- unimaginable that that might extend into how the commander of chief of the United States starts making decisions about war and peace in the Asia Pacific. Um, But again, now we're getting down a really dark path. So before we do that, I'm going to pull us back and uh, let's talk a bit about alliances, Prashant, which is obviously an area where I think some of I think there's been a little nuance lost, actually, on what Trump has specifically said about alliances. Um, He's opposed them, but he's opposed them on the grounds of cost again. I mean, really, it comes down to this kind of real estate baron kind of thinking where, hey, I'm paying too much for this. I'm not getting much back in return. You know, if I were to be charitable, I might say that Trump is simply ignorant of the benefits that U.S. alliances provide. Um, And maybe once he's briefed sufficiently, he will maybe reverse course and say, hey, this is actually not a bad deal. And Japan and South Korea actually pick up quite a bit of the tab. Or I could be entirely wrong. And he doubles down on his opposition, potentially renegotiating treaties, pulling back U.S. extended deterrence guarantees, including the nuclear umbrella, forcing South Korea, certainly, to think about nuclear breakout. I mean, we've already heard South Korean lawmakers very seriously bring up this idea during the campaign season. Um, And really, uh, you know, that would be a huge loss for the longer term nonproliferation agenda that has driven U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Japan, to a lesser extent, um, I think we might see uh, certain ultra conservatives in Japan begin to pursue that. Certainly Shinzo Abe's plans to reform Japan's um, military, make Japan a normal country, I think would get a huge boost um, if you had a President Trump um, use his historically unfriendly language about Japan uh, publicly during a, a summit or uh, in a statement, uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, if there's anything that's constant about Trump, I mean, I've been reading his statements going back to the 1980s. Um, he's deeply skeptical of Japan. And that goes back to his experience as a real estate developer yep. in the 1980s, when the perception of the United States was that the Japanese were about to buy up the entire country. Trump obviously resented that. And that view has somehow carried through despite, you know, the so-called lost decades in Japan and the entire change of the post-Cold War order. Uh, really, that that hasn't changed for Trump. I mean, his, his other big, uh, I think, constant view is his opinion of trade deals. But we can talk about that in a bit when we get to the TPP. Um, what's your take on the alliance angle here? Maybe you can talk a bit about the Philippines and um, the Southeast Asian alliances. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think you, you know you're absolutely right. I think if I were to summarize his approach to alliances in one word, it would just be you know transactional, right? So um, and and the problem with that is um, it, you know it makes for a really great rhetoric uh, in terms of the campaign sort of saying that, oh, you know, we, we've been taken for a ride. I can make you a better deal because I'm a great businessman. Um, but now that you're actually going to govern the country um, and you're getting advice about, you know, what these arrangements actually are, you know, quickly find out that in some cases the United States is actually getting the better end of the deal. 
um, <laughs> and in, uh, despite despite what you're uh, initially saying, and also you know the on on the flip side, if the United States pulls back, as you correctly pointed out, we've seen this in history. Um, you know, every few decades when this happens, when the United States reduces its its commitment, or there's a perceived sense of a reduction of U.S. commitment, you know, either other rivals or adversaries will fill the vacuum, or allies and partners will try to pursue. Uh, you know more defense expenditures or their own uh, capabilities, and you know that's been happening already to a certain extent in the Asia Pacific already. So um, if Trump, you know, sort of goes ahead with um, sort of either reneging or downgrading, or you know even inserting uncertainty into some of these alliances, you could very well see um, that trend happening. Now, with respect to Southeast Asia, um, I think. One of the interesting variables here is, you know, on the one hand, uh, Thailand and the Philippines haven't really featured in terms of Trump's own rhetoric. Um, the focus has been mostly on Japan and South Korea. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, one of the interesting things, you know, you talk to his advisors, they keep mentioning that the Philippines and Thailand are good examples where China is outplaying uh, the United States. And that's a, as a result of the failed Obama-Clinton, uh, so-called Obama-Clinton uh, legacy. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if, if the Trump uh, presidency uh, will, will see uh, the United States try to strike better deals with uh, both Thailand and the Philippines. Now, Thailand, you know, there's sort of a, a lesser variable there. It's mostly very domestic politics focused right now with the passing of the king, which we've talked about before. But with the Philippines, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that would be the interesting one, right? Because mm -hmm. you have two leaders who are trying to <laughs> renegotiate uh, one uh, relationship. So. Right. You know, one final thought on alliances. Again, here, I think um, staffers will be very important, particularly, you know, um, whoever ends up on the NSC. I mean, obviously, in Washington, D.C., there's a big community of people who believe in, you know, mm -hmm that the United States should change its paradigm to something like offshore balancing. And there's, you know, there's decent intellectual grounding for that. You have very accomplished scholars who have written quite a bit about that. And, you know, I mean, if I were them, a Trump administration beyond the, uh, you know, if you can stomach the uh, bigoted and misogynistic and racist language um, involved in the campaign, it might be the opportunity that you see to um, change entirely the paradigm of uh, U.S. post-war foreign policy um, and the way the country thinks about alliances. But obviously, you know, Asia might not be the actual litmus test here. I mean, something like NATO, um, I think, would be something else to watch. And that might be um, a bellwether for what might be to come in Asia, simply because, you know, I think Trump's been a lot more vocal about NATO and his his odd views about U.S.-Russia relations as well play a role there. Um, yeah, I think the, the NATO example is really interesting, too. I mean, you, you look at his rhetoric and how it's evolved. You know, initially, he was talking about NATO and saying that it's, you know, sort of an old, decrepit, outdated, archaic alliance. Uh, but then, you know, later on, a few months later in his speech, he, he sort of said, yeah, you know, I think we can work with NATO on terrorism because, you know, after I gave my earlier speech, they've since set up an anti-terrorism unit. So, you know, this idea of Donald Trump seeking a better deal with countries, I mean, if it's just a matter of, you know, these countries just responding to his rhetoric in sort of a deferential way, um, you know, I, I don't know how much there is to that beyond the campaign rhetoric. But if he's really serious about deal making and and his advisors sort of follow through on that ideologically, that will be a whole separate uh, discussion. Right. Uh, so you brought up terrorism, which is actually something I wanted to talk about. Uh, so, you know, terrorism, just reading what Trump has said, seems to me uh, to be something that he really treats as the United States primary 
threat. Um, you know, he's not too much, you know, he's not too worried about Russian military or nuclear modernization or Chinese naval threats within the first island chain. He's pretty worried about terrorism. And, you know, I think that's expressed itself in a variety of ways. Um, obviously, you have the, you know, the reprehensible proposals like the Muslim ban domestically, but you also have his fairly hawkish language on the war against the Islamic State, um, where he's, you know, again, gone to various lengths, including um, you know, stating his support for torture, for potentially striking back against the innocent families of potential fighters uh, in the Syria-Iraq conflict. Uh, but it'd be interesting to game out, you know, how that might play out again in the Asia-Pacific, since terrorism is obviously something that's on the agenda, um, certainly in Southeast Asia and South Asia, um, and even with China. Um, and I, I, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, um, or if his advisors had anything to say about how terrorism might come to play a role in Asia policy. Yeah, um, I, you know, I think uh, you know you're absolutely right. If you if you talk to his advisors, they'll they'll say it, it's they they won't rank it. They refuse to rank it, but they'll say amongst the top of the challenges would be you know nuclear nonproliferation and uh, terrorism. And you know the way he likes to frame it is you know radical Islam or radical Islamic terrorism. Um, you know, I, I think there's a couple of interesting things to this. The first is, you know, and I appreciated that you mentioned this in your piece, with all these foreign policy issues, we got to keep in mind that there is a, you know, there's a whole domestic set of issues here that could very well influence the way the Trump presidency uh, evolves. And a lot of his uh, proposals on, on the terrorism front, uh, including the Muslim ban, um, you know, are a very big part of how the world, not just the United States, sees his approach to counterterrorism. And that can have effects on how, for example, Malaysia and Indonesia, who already, you know, in spite of their growing security and economic cooperation in the United States, already have populations that are very wary and cautious about U.S. involvement in the Middle East. I mean, if we see Trump uh, intervening or, or increasing U.S. commitment in the Middle East in a ways that might alienate these countries, that could make cooperation uh, harder uh, for the United States in, in, in these Southeast Asian countries. I mean, the other thing to think about is, you know, the, the sort of the analogy with the George W. Bush administration, right, right. In, in where you have, uh, you know, one threat or coming to dominate U.S. policy in, in, in the sub-region, you know, sort of this, this threat-centric uh, U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, that always, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, that leads you to get security cooperation with these countries in a very narrow, specific way. But as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's always good. I mean, the Obama administration has been, you know, quite masterful of this. To try to balance that security cooperation with with economic and people-to-people -people ties too, just to ensure that you have you know the necessary leverage um, and it's it's broad enough that people don't view the United States as purely this you know militaristic uh, hegemon who is looking to you know deal with threats and force these countries to be part of uh, this coalition. So, how he balances terrorism um, and threats in general with opportunities in the region will be interesting to watch. And, you know, he's a businessman. Um, you know, the, the part of me thinks that, you know, the optimistic side of me at least thinks that, you know, maybe he might uh, be somebody who to, to spur some uh, interest uh, and additional U.S. policy measures on, on, on the business side of things and the economic side of things. Right. Um, but I don't know if he would think that much and that critically on foreign policy or whether he's going to outsource this to some other folks who, like I said, I mean, the, the main thing, you mentioned this earlier, how much is Asia going to really matter in Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy? I mean, we've taken that for granted, as you pointed out, with the Obama administration, but maybe the Middle East and terrorism, you know, is going to dominate things, and Asia is going to matter in terms of, you know, if China does something, 
um, or you know Trump's going to attend the the meetings and he's going to deal with Southeast Asian countries individually on threats. But beyond that, you know ASEAN and these other things may not matter as much. Yeah, and the sad thing is, as you and I both know, it's kind of hard to come by um, Asia staffers, um, you know, that are capable in D.C. It almost feels like, you know, I mean, Trump's already having difficulty staffing his national security team. He might have to start picking at random. And when you start doing that, you're probably going to end up with Middle East experts. Um, just uh, that's the way things Absolutely. things shake out. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, this is another area where I think, you know, again, it will matter down, you know, it'll come down to his appointments, um, really, with this, um, like staff plays a huge role here. Uh, but, you know, you brought up something that I did want to get to as well. Uh, you keep doing that, which is great. Um, but, you know, let's talk a bit about just, you know, how the United States is going to be perceived under a Trump presidency. Obviously, we have a, fa- a range of issues here. You brought up people-to-people ties. Obviously, the United States has had a huge pull factor, huge Asian diasporas from a variety of countries. Um, obviously, you know, Korea, China, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, India, um, all these Asian countries have immense communities um, in the United States. And actually, you know, Asian Americans are a very... Um, are an increasingly powerful political uh, constituency in this country as well. Um, I mean, for example, we had, I think with uh, this past election, we have a record high number of uh, South Asian Americans um, in Congress than ever before. Um, But, you know, when you have um, a U.S. president who's made remarks that are clearly and unambiguously xenophobic, um, racist, and even, you know, hostile to Muslims, um, I mean, I worry just longer term about how the United States will be perceived in the region. I mean, this is, I think, you know, one of those things that's even more difficult to discuss than some of the concrete policy proposals, just because it really depends on what, uh, you know, how Trump's uh, campaign era rhetoric translates to what he'll say as president. For example, you know, um, if he delivers a major speech at something like the East Asia Summit, uh, what would he say? You know, would he go with the traditional message that, you know, U.S. presidents have delivered in Asia where they talk of democracy, human rights, the rule of law, or, you know, is there something darker waiting for us? I mean, these are just some questions I have. I mean, uh, do you want to chime in on that at all? No, absolutely. And I think it this gets to uh, the issue, which is that, you know, one would like to be able to deal with uh, foreign policy and, and be able to to insulate it from some of the domestic considerations. But in, in Trump's case, it's almost impossible to do that because he's essentially fused domestic policy with uh, foreign policy, with his proposals. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the reactions coming out internationally, I mean, not just anecdotally, but, you know, more broadly, um, you know, the, the if you look at the popular reaction as opposed to the, the elite reactions, I mean, this is this very much sort of, you know, how could America elect somebody who has said, you know, any number of, you know, you, you name it, right, bigoted, misogynistic, um, prejudiced, uh, ignorant uh, comments. Um, And that, you know, unfortunately, while Americans may not like it, that's an indictment not only of Donald Trump, it's an indictment of the United States. How that matters for foreign policy is, I mean, if you're going around um, talking about democracy and human rights and the United States being a beacon of, you know, democracy at a time when you're already seeing democracy uh, in retreat, statistically speaking, and then also the challenge from authoritarian regimes, um, you know, you how much credibility does the Trump presidency have in terms of doing this? But also, I mean, what are going to be the after effects after the Trump presidency? You know, think about how after the George W. Bush administration, how democracy promotion was a bad word for so many years, right? Right. Um, this, these uh, things have consequences far beyond just one presidency. So I think, you know, while I would like to be able to, to, to sort of not talk about some of the, the darker uh, aspects of 
the Trump presidency, I think I, you know, like like yourself, I mean, it, it, it's kind of hard not to talk about those things. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's uh, move a bit now to South Asia, uh, which I think is, again, an, um, I think it's actually a particularly interesting um, example of an area where the Trump presidency presents some interesting possibilities. I actually want to start my discussion on South Asia by talking a bit, a bit about Pakistan. Um, so Pakistan's been a very difficult U.S. partner, as uh, listeners to this podcast and readers of The Diplomat might know. Obviously, the United States hasn't fully treated Pakistan like an adversary. It's treated it like a partner that it has some difficulties with, particularly over terrorism. And, you know, obviously, we have to view this also in the context of shifting U.S. ties with India and the broader India-Pakistan relationship. But what's interesting is that, you know, if you imagine a Trump administration, depending on who ends up staffing, uh, depending on the kind of influence legislators like Senator Bob Corker end up having, um, he's been a vocal, vocal um, congressman, you know, saying that the United States essentially stop all cooperation with Pakistan, given its support of militant groups. Uh, you know, you can genuinely imagine Trump hearing something like that and being like, why are we still supporting this country? Why don't we cut them off entirely? And that, I think, changes the dynamics considerably in Southeast Asia, uh, leaving the Pakistani military uh, intelligence um, community in particular in a, in a predicament, you know, without American support, which has really been a constant for Pakistan post its independence. Um, I think it introduces quite a bit of instability into the dynamics on the subcontinent. With India, I think we can... Um, with India, I mean, I actually think things might end up working out somewhat with India. I mean, obviously, on the people-to-people -people side, there'll be difficulties with the immigration policy, which is actually a huge issue for India. Uh, yeah. Things like, you know, visas for skilled workers, Trump's uh, gone back and forth on. But more broadly speaking, um, you know, maybe Trump simply won't notice the scale of defense cooperation that the United States has been pursuing with India. Um, I mean, simply, it's it's just been occurring on a very institutionalized level. And uh, that's, in a way, a good thing. Uh, that's something, yep. you know, to Ash Carter's credit, he's taken a very special interest in making sure that U.S.-India defense cooperation is well institutionalized and well oiled. Stuff like, you know, cooperation on uh, nuclear propulsion for aircraft carrier design is something that India had been really hoping uh, uh, to stick out for. Again, Trump, you know, might see that as another transactional opportunity with New Delhi. Um, and, you know, also with the BJP in control in India, I have been seeing some weird synergies between the uh, the Hindu right in India and Trump's brand of sort of, um, you know, hard on immigration, hard on Islam rhetoric. So that actually could end up forming some sort of disturbing, strange synergy uh, that might actually work out diplomatically. Again, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, uh, none of this is, again, a prognostication that I want to stick by. It's the beauty of the podcast format. You can let these words just go out into the ether instead of putting them down on pen and paper where they can be searched for all eternity. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Prashant, I think the real tragedy in South Asia is Afghanistan. Um, and I think, you know, we picked up on that way before uh, November 8th. I mean, Afghanistan was mentioned once in all three presidential debates. It's pretty much been written off by the American public. We had, you know, I think f four U.S. soldiers were killed in action in Afghanistan in early November and October and barely got a mention. I don't think either candidate really said anything about that. Um, so it never really seemed like whoever won that Afghanistan would be a priority. But under Trump, I think it's a particularly bleak scenario now for Ashraf Ghani and the National Unity Government. Um, I think if there's anything that Trump would want to wash his hands off of as quickly as possible in Asia, it would be the war in Afghanistan, which is the longest running U.S. conflict in history. Um, so I'm really just, you know, and obviously, given the way the militancy has been going in Afghanistan, that bodes fairly well for the control of the central government in Kabul. We may see uh, large swaths of the country um, that have already fallen to the Taliban simply keep falling, uh, potentially, you know, foreboding a full-on regression in the country. Um, any comments on the situation in South Asia? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, you, you summarize it really well. I think uh, the, the risk is, you know, for Trump, um, he, he tends to have this very, uh, you know, sort of 
polarized view about things. Um, and Pakistan, you know, it, it, it's not quite a, a, a Chinese satellite or a Chinese ally, but I think for Trump, you know, if, if you give him a briefing and he doesn't like to listen to these briefings anyway and, you know, only takes advice intermittently, um, but if you if you brief him on Pakistan, I think he'd, he would have a very hard time understanding what the value the United States gets from the relationship with Pakistan and think that, you know, it has very little to gain um, and if it lost Pakistan, it'd have very little to lose. Um, whereas if you did the briefing on India, I think uh, even under the Obama administration, you have, you know, some officials joking that, you know, it's great to talk about India because, um, you know, there's very little to lose from talking about, you know, better U.S.-India cooperation on any of these fronts. And a lot of the progress happens, as you pointed out, in, in, in the institutional level. Um, I think the, the, the key variable um, is exactly what you mentioned, on the, uh, which is the extent to which, uh, not just on India or South Asia, but just in generally, how much cooperation can proceed, uh, even if you have high-level drastic changes uh, from Donald Trump in terms of sort of systematic institutionalized cooperation. Um, and if you can see that happening, you know, not only in India, but, you know, it, it, with the Maritime Security Initiative and DOD and some of these other countries in Southeast Asia, um, you know, that bodes well for some level of continuity um, uh, for the United States and U.S. policy. I mean, as we know, um, you know, U.S. policy is, is, is sort of a, it's a shorthand for a very complex uh, and very varied set, set of institutions that are involved in U.S. policymaking. Mm -hmm. The executive branch is, you know, only one of them. Um, so that is one of the things that I'm going to be watching very closely, which is, you know, what is the relationship between Donald Trump, uh, his immediate cabinet, his advisors on these various regional bureaus, and then the bureaucracies um, themselves? Um, because that that's going to, I think, determine a lot about what happens in the weeds, and that's very much what we write about, not just the big picture stuff. Right, and I feel like you've always had a very good finger on the pulse of that, you know, just what's going on bureaucratically. So it'll be very interesting to have your take on that as the Trump presidency proceeds. Um, you know, I bet you thought when you, you know, decided to start working at The Diplomat and started to write about Asia policy that you'd never end up covering Donald Trump's um, Asia <laughs> policy, but here we are. Yeah. Um, so certainly interesting times, I guess. Um, and in a way, while you might be a little bit afraid of what is to come, it is, in a sense, exciting in an academic sense, because we are going to see some pretty remarkable changes just in the way the world um, operates. I mean, we have an American president, like I said, who just doesn't share fundamental assumptions and understanding with all of his predecessors going back to the end of the Second World War. And what that will hold for us, um, we'll find out. And uh, hopefully we find out in a peaceful and productive way. Um, well, yep. with that, um, I think we'll conclude this podcast. It was a little longer than usual, but I think that'll make up for the fact that we probably won't produce one next week. I'll actually be traveling to Japan this weekend, which I'm looking forward to, um, since I'll be able to hopefully have some conversations about what the Japanese are thinking about Donald Trump and the possibility of, you know, what this means for Shinzo Abe's reforms. Maybe, But maybe we can uh, talk about Japan when I'm back, Prashant. Sounds good. All right, great. Well, uh, thanks for listening. And as usual, please subscribe to the podcast if you hadn't already done so. And do leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That really helps the show. Thanks for listening.